Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I am your host, Hillary Jones. Oh my goodness. Okay, first, a couple of quick gear notes for me, really just one. Uh, I'm selling a couple of things on Reverb to make some new gear dreams come true. I know you're on the edge of your seat to find out what it might be. Well, uh, the first thing that I'm doing is I've I've I maybe have discussed this on the podcast, but basically I think I'm like having some sort of gear midlife crisis where maybe I'm a single coil person after my entire life being a humbucker person. Haven't had single coils on a guitar since I was 14 years old. It's a wild time to be alive. All right, I so I got a Fender Lead 2 today in the mail, and it is super fun. Um, it's light. It sounds kind of jangly and spanky like a telly. If you're unfamiliar with the Lead 2, they made them in the like late 70s, early 80s, and Fender just started re- remaking them a few years ago. And they're just like... They're, yeah, they're kind of like a mix between a number of fenders. It's kind of like the body is basically like a, if a Strat and a Mustang had a baby, kind of more like a Fender Bullet from the 80s, something like that. It's The body shape is like a little bit smaller. It's just, it's it's perfect for what I need, which is some single coils, maybe only two, but not a telly. I like tellies. I have one, but it, the body's a little bit thicker than I want. Anyway... It's under $500. How great is that? So I'm probably going to make a couple changes. I did a neck adjustment. I'm going to maybe learn how to do fret dressing. We'll see how that goes. Maybe add a Bigsby. Hoping so. But that will come soon. So I'll uh, have a video on Instagram with that in a little bit. So keep your eyes peeled. On the non-gear end of things, there are two main things in the news that happened recently that I just want to address real quickly. So first, in high school... My boyfriend and bandmate at the time's favorite band was Marilyn Manson. So we listened to him a lot, and I've seen him play at least a couple of times. I don't know. Before you judge, I was 14 when Portrait came out and 16 when Antichrist Superstar came out and he really blew up. So there's that. But I think I've read his, I think I actually read his book when it came out. I don't entirely remember, um, and I don't remember any of the book really. But I would say that a lot of that isn't entirely notable. The book isn't that notable. The things that happened in it aren't that notable. And I haven't really thought about it for a really long time. But the reason that it could contain some misogynistic behavior and for me not to remember is that that is really just part of the problem. It is so normal. Even though I was a feminist when I was that age, even, and I went to, you know, take back the night marches, bikini kill concerts or whatever, I was still too young to have the ability to see that what he was doing was like terribly abnormal um, because really a lot of it just wasn't like he was doing the same thing as a lot of other rock stars at the time and now, but just with makeup on. So we scared parents more. That was it. That was it. And a lot hasn't changed. So (laughs) that's at the heart of the problem, right? Like we need to make it so that this behavior isn't normalized. I know I feel like a broken record here and I think we're getting there, but we aren't there yet. So on that note, after the interview today, I'll be covering a little bit about the definition of sexual harassment. If you want to dig in a little bit on that more, you know, obviously the things that he's engaging in were more would, would go beyond that. But I do think that's an important topic to cover and is hopefully relevant to folks in the industry. All right. Second item is related to the ridiculous commentary around Phoebe Bridgers smashing a guitar on Saturday Night Live. I am generally not into musicians smashing guitar because they love gear and it's that sad and it seems wasteful. But the disproportionate amount of crap that she is getting is clearly evidence of people having a problem when a woman demonstrates anger or aggression. That's it. That's the problem here. So one really needs to check themselves their reactions for just a split second, even a split second, and they would probably recognize that. So there's that. All right. If you want to get into more about that, Emily Harris of the Get Offset uh, does so in their podcast this week and also a long piece on YouTube. So check that out if you want more thoughtful analysis. All right. Anyway. Okay. Let's get into it. I want to start off by thanking Midriff's sponsors. First, Earthquaker Devices. Last week, Earthquaker posted a blog by former Midriff guest Sarah Lando of the Julie Ruin, who gives some hot tips for home recording. So you should probably check that out, right? And as always, I want to share this week's Earthquaker Devices YouTube comment of the week from YouTuber Get Fiddler on the Roof, who should be recognized for their name alone. But let's go on. They said, quote, unquote. So 
I just got my astral destiny the other day, and it is Celestial AF. Seriously, people, $199, it might be the best bang for your buck pedal in EQD's lineup. What the fuck you waiting for? Go get one. Right? I, I, I don't see why you would disagree with that. <laughs> so get on top of that. Get yourself an Astral Destiny or one of uh, Earthquaker's other pedals at EarthquakerDevices.com. And thanks once again to Studio 121. Skylar can help you with all of your audio needs at a super reasonable price. With a quick turnaround, editing, production, recording, jingles, podcast music, whatever you may need, she can help you. Find Studio 121 on Instagram at Official Studio 121. And last but not least, I'd like to thank Stompbox Sonic. Stompbox Sonic provides musicians with an extensive tonal palette for auditory exploration. Specializing in effects pedals, they offer a curated collection of companies, large and small, some locally crafted, some assembled from around the world. Based in Boston, Adam and Jen have been helping musicians and sound-based artists find their sound since 2009 by working collaboratively through one-on-one -on -one consultations. They do more than sell you a pedal. They ignite the creative spark to bring music to your life. They create a comfortable, judgment-free zone for all musicians where sonic experimentation is encouraged. And they are fabulous. They are good people. They want to help you find a pedal. Even if you aren't in Boston, they will help you meet your needs in the musical realm. So check them out on their social media or at stompboxonic.com. All right. These sponsors support the podcast, and I hope you support them too. You can find links in the show notes to sponsors and to the Midriff Instagram, Facebook pages, website, whatever else you might need. All right. Today's guest is the fabulous Asha Tamarisa, who I had originally met when she was in her graduate program at Brown University and where she co-founded a collective called Open Signal, who were concerned with the state of gender and race in electronic music and art practice. And she uses sound, video, and film in her work and is currently an assistant professor of music at Bates College. She just rules, and I think you will really enjoy our conversation. So check it out. With that, here is my conversation with Asha. Welcome to Midriff. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it, uh, joining this virtual space with you. So can you introduce yourself, your name, your pronouns, and a little bit about yourself and your background with music? Sure. I'm Asha, Asha Tamarisa, she, her, hers. And uh, I'm kind of a chronic dabbler. <laughs> <laughs> um, like I've never really gotten like really good at an instrument, but I've tried many <laughs> As a kid, I took some piano lessons with like a more or less suburban classical piano teacher and didn't really like it mm -hmm. and didn't really learn how to read like Western music notation through those lessons, like kind of, but I was never like a sight reader. And I, I ended up kind of dropping it. I used to bike over to my lessons and when I didn't feel like going, I would tell my teacher that. I couldn't make it. And then I would tell my parents that the teacher had canceled. <laughs> That's a good style. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't, I didn't hate it, but I don't think I liked that way of learning. Obviously there was something about it that didn't appeal to me. And then my, my brother was playing guitar. He's older than I am. And so I used to kind of see him playing guitar and he would play with his friends. And that seemed to make more sense to me. Um, but I was a very shy young person. And so it took me a while before I could like, actually, I was also, I just didn't speak a lot out loud. <laughs> There's a lot going on in my head, mm -hmm. but I, it, 
I, so it was a while before I actually said out loud, like, I'd like to learn how to play the guitar or I'd like to try that. But whenever I was home alone, I would sneak my brother's guitar out of his yep. room and, and try things and, and look up tab on the internet. And <laughs> so there was that and uh, mm-hmm. that way of engaging with music, which was like semi notated, but also like more intuitive and by ear made a lot more sense to me. So yeah, I kept dabbling and um I also at some point um, started studying Indian classical percussion. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe the one thing that I've done kind of more rigidly. And I did that for most of my high school and college years. And then, you know, also dropped that. It's fine. <laughs> and that was like kind of a conversation that I was having with myself about like, I had just discovered experimental music and um, things that people were doing with machines. And that was really interesting and exciting to me. Ooh. I think there was a few things. One uh one thing that I hadn't thought about in a while um that I started thinking about before um we started doing this was that one of my first audio editing experiences was um at a radio station, a local public radio station. I was like helping someone sort of um produce a jazz show. Um and he showed me like how he slices together the segments and the songs and the tracks. And um, that was, I think, I I don't even remember what software it was, maybe audacity or something. Um, It was just very simple splicing, but that was my first introduction to like, Oh, what does that look like? What does that process look like? What does audio look like on a computer screen? (laughs) Um, But uh, uh, it was really in college that I started going to shows and seeing what other people were doing and seeing people improvise in a way that I hadn't seen before, Um, like not jazz or in Indian classical music. There's a lot of improvisation, but the whole thing is very structured. Um, And so to see people just really kind of like trying things in that moment um, was really exciting. Uh, I'm trying to think if there was like specific shows. I think it was just seeing some of my friends in college doing things. And I was like, I want to try that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in some ways having, seeing your friends do it makes it a little less intimidating. Yeah, I think totally. It's like, you know, someone I had talked to before and they also (laughs) um, are doing this thing that I find really exciting. I think it makes it seem a lot more doable. Um, You have someone you can ask about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. What is your musical life looking like right now? So obviously you're doing a lot of other things too, but what, what are, what are you up to right now? (laughs) Hmm. I just got a piano actually to kind of come full circle. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I'm kind of enjoying, like I got some, like, this is how, this is the correct fingering for a major scale. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I'm kind of enjoying the rigidity of it. Um, maybe just because everything in the world feels so uh, and is so um, wonky and unpredictable, especially, well, always, but especially this last year. And it's kind of nice to play something that I don't have to turn on. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, It's just kind of there and it's like this nice quiet thing to do. So that's been kind of like a weird left turn. I'm also teaching music now. So yeah, uh, I think that has a lot to do with why I'm like suddenly interested in this uh, in the piano again. <laughs> Cause you, you do play kind of a little bit of everything, right? Like you, I mean, Dabbly, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I understand, but still, it, but it's been a while since I've played like music, music, like chords and thought about chord changes and, yeah. and playing within a meter. And just because I've been doing, uh, I didn't really describe this before, but more like formless kind of long form improv with uh, machines of various kinds. And so, yeah, so it's been a while since I've like played music as it were. <laughs> what is music? <laughs> what is it? On the next episode. <laughs> 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 but uh, yeah, I'm teaching music theory now and it's kind of, it's fun to think about all of these things, I think with my ears now. So uh, that's kind of like what's going on the most right now. But mm-hmm. I just moved. So all of my other life is a little bit in disarray. Um, all of my gears and boxes, but eventually I'll unpack it all and, and get set up somehow. I'm excited that I moved and I have more space now to, oh, yeah. to, and I can make a little more noise where I am now. 
So uh, I'm, I'm excited for what the future might hold. I'd really like to, I, I've released sounds into the world, not like, like super serious album form. Like I've kind of been like someone I really admire asks if I want to do something. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I, here's my like small offering <laughs> of, you know, 30 minutes of sounds. <laughs> um, but I'd really like to like try to think about that a little bit more intentionally. So that's kind of something that might be on the horizon. That's cool. Yeah. Um, so as far as the actual tools, can you talk a little bit about your like gear journey? How that's, that's obviously you started with piano and we're back to <laughs> piano, but what happened in between there? <laughs> yeah, I, I guess like in high school, I was, I was writing songs. Uh, in addition to that radio show, I, or maybe kind of like around that time, I started to try to record them mm-hmm. with like, I think I had like my family's you know, pers- like my family's desktop computer came with this like plastic microphone and that was my microphone. Mm, <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I got to college and as I started to go to shows, I kind of realized that like I could be, I could be doing that thing that I was doing in my bedroom, but with like other tools and there's people like that are, that are my age and like in my position doing work that I'm finding like really moving and really impressive. And so I started to seek out the music technology courses, but mm. found them extremely intimidating. Why, why were they so intimidating? Uh, well, I, I showed up to music in college with like, you know, my, my dabbler history. <laughs> and a lot of people around me were like classically trained. And a lot of them already had pretty significant music technology experience, mm-hmm. even if it was different from what we were doing in the classroom, like maybe they did a lot of like live sound engineering already yeah something or they played in bands where they you know they just kind of knew knew the stuff knew the cables knew the gear uh and I just really felt like I was kind of like I'm not sure how to relate like I know the thing that I want to try to do but I'm not sure at all like the space between here and there (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm-hmm mm-hmm that's where I was introduced to like okay these are the like kinds of palettes of tools that people use there's like you know, lots of different kinds of microphones and lots of yeah. different kinds of software, but they all kind of look like this. <laughs> um, <laughs> they all kind of look the same. They, there's similar things that they all do. So I started to see that even if I didn't have like immediate facility with the tools, it took a while before I started to feel comfortable enough to like really try things. But I think that's mm-hmm. partially because of the environment that I was in where like people just knew <laughs> what to do. <laughs> so what what were you using then, ah, like around that well, time? Well, the, the school computers had Pro Tools. That was just like the yeah. thing. And I had GarageBand on my personal computer, which I did use at the time mm-hmm. for my own things. But yeah, I think we were almost like, it was like we had to use Pro Tools. <laughs> um, yes, you have to. <laughs> only acceptable. Yeah. Um, which I liked using, um, but yeah, it was like, it's just so specific with the hardware and how you had to set everything up. And um, a lot of people around me were using a software called Max MSP, which is kind of like a very visual programming uh, environment. And I use that a lot now, but I had no idea <laughs> um, <laughs> why anyone would want to work that way then, aside from liking the things that people were making uh, with that tool. So yeah, that's kind of that was my motivation initially, but I had no idea like why you needed to use that tool to do that thing. There's mm-hmm. just a lot of gray, <laughs> gray area between <laughs> so much mystery. Yeah, exactly. And and now I see it's like really needless, just like a conversation that kind of framed uh, what we were doing and and why we were doing it that way would have really helped. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but those are kinds of the those are kind of the main things. And I was also kind of like vaguely familiar with guitar pedals. I didn't really understand effects, but I kind of kind of got it. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that was like a little bit in my arsenal of of tools. But I think everything was kind of muddy at that point for me when I was being on yeah. these things. So then, so now, but it seems like along the way, you've sort of like have a at least. I know you're going to say you're dabbling, but it seems like you have a mastery over a wide range of different like software pieces. You've created some of your own software. You have created your own instruments. You have, I don't know, like it seems like and and you're like integrating it with audio, like visual pieces. 
So it feels like you're at this point now where it went from being a mystery to not a mystery. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think that point where it started to feel like, oh, I understand this. It was so huge because for so mm-hmm. long, I just felt like like I was accidentally making things. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, once I started to understand a little bit about like signal processing or like how to understand what's happening to sound as it moves through these various stages of effects. Yeah. That it made me more curious about building things. So once I understood how things work, it was like, oh my gosh, there's actually a logic to this. Like, and and I can understand it. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I can even maybe like build the thing. I'm trying to think. Like, so I started with software primarily, and then I went to grad school. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, I had only really worked with software or digital tools until then. And mm-hmm. there was this old analog synthesizer that the school had just um, restored. So it wasn't working and they they uh, put a lot of money into like bringing it back to life. Um, and so everyone else was really excited about it, but I didn't really, I didn't really know, like it looked really cool. It was from the seventies. <laughs> Is this that? ARP? Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. the ARP 2500, the first synthesizer that ARP synthesizer produced. And it was a very small run, a very big kind of clunky machine, but I just kind of like, was like, well, I'm in school. I'm going to learn how to use this. <laughs> and with a lot of help from uh, my peers and the technical director at Brown, Jim Moses, he would just kind of like hang out with me in the machine and kind of show me things and we would listen to it together. And, you know, that for me is like really helpful doing it with someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think like I am primed to kind of always question the thing that I'm understanding or, you know, like as I'm understanding it and being like, maybe I'm wrong. So to have someone else there to be like, yeah, (laughs) Um, (laughs) have a little backup. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. And so I started to understand so much more about sound through that and just kind of like taking time with this old machine. Do you think that having like the tangible analog pieces helped you make the connections about how it works? Yeah. Digitally as well or? Totally. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think because all of our digital tools are so much analogs of the analog yeah they're they're modeled after the hardware right you think about like um, old recording gear and how things look you know the digital interfaces and so yeah working with the thing (laughs) really helped me understand or working with the the older thing the the analog machine really helped me understand the logic of the digital tool Mm -hmm. because otherwise it's like okay I'll do it because someone told me that's the way it works but now I understand why it's set up that way. <laughs> if someone didn't have access to an ARP 2500, just for example, yeah, I mean, how might one go about doing that? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't think it's the only way. <laughs> to understand it. Which would be hilarious if it was, but I, I can understand how that like massive, massive piece of equipment, like having mastery of it could make those connections. But if you don't have that, like what's, what would be another example of a way that one might go about learning that? Yeah. um, That's a really good question. Yeah. I don't think it's so much like that. Well, I think the issue with how I was acquainted with tools was that like, there's already this, there were so many assumptions made on the part of my really lovely instructors that like, Mm -hmm. on a very basic level, I knew what was already happening. And yeah, I think it's just kind of that framing of like your start, your sound starts here and then this is what happens to it. And then it ends up here and it looks like this because of like, let's look at this old machine. And, you know, I think there's a way to kind of create a narrative around the process to tell a little story about it that, um, you know, will like help make the whole process or the software seem less abstract. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, that's just kind of the way that I learn also, which is like the tangible and things being very spatial is like, that's how my brain kind of organizes things. I think for other folks, like, you know, just kind of seeing it happen in software is like maybe enough to, Mm -hmm. to, to kind of like, okay, like this is what's happening. I need more of this or, you know, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, that kind of like tangible spatial thing is, is personally really helpful. There are a lot of good like resources on the internet, but I still think it's like awesome if you can find a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Get a buddy. Yeah, to watch those things with or, you know, maybe someone who's kind of gone through that intro process before to to just kind of be like, oh, you know, check this out. Um, This might be helpful. And then and then check this out, like to help kind of 
figure out a sequence of things. Yeah, I mean, like part of it was the tool, but part of it was also that like someone offered their time. <laughs> uh, right. No, that totally yeah. makes sense. Mm -hmm. Do, so as far as like, as you've kind of like become more acquainted with gear, you know, like what have your experiences been like with regard to like gender and identities and your interactions with gear? Yeah. <laughs> Let's get in there. <laughs> well, so when I was working with the synthesizer, the ARP 2500, mm -hmm. I became like really interested in the history of analog synthesis and analog synthesizers. And with this particular machine, there just wasn't that much information about it because it wasn't, there's like a hundred of them made. Mm -hmm. And then a new synthesizer came out that was like smaller and more portable, the ARP 2600. And so that's one that there's like more literature and kind of ephemera about. So I ended up like scouring, that led me to message boards. <laughs> ah, message boards. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, there's just like so much rampant misogyny and sexism on message boards where like the assumption is like everyone on there is a cis white dude and that mm -hmm. they're all high-fiving each other <laughs> like I don't know <laughs> and like making you know I'm gonna I like the high-fiving part I hadn't really visualized that before but like a visual visualizing a bunch of dudes on, like virtually in a message board high-fiving makes it so much better yeah I don't know and I it mean cracks it, me up. it feels the same like uh, like hovering in those message board spaces without really like announcing yourself kind of feels like it does and did like after or before a music show where like there might be a few dudes talking to each other and you're standing there, but it kind of just feels like like the conversation's happening over your head or something or like uh -huh. right past like you. literally over your head, yeah, right. like <laughs> around you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like, I guess that was a lot of my experience of being in spaces where like I was trying to follow a curiosity about sound or gear or the experience of music <laughs> um, and that it would just feel like deeply uncomfortable because it felt like I wasn't really there or I shouldn't be there or something mm -hmm. or that the thing that was happening like wasn't for me. And, you know, of course, I'm sure other people have felt that way in other spaces as well, unfortunately. So yeah, I mean, that's like, it can be really discouraging. I think, again, like, that's where having some sort of community where you can either like, go back and be like, Ugh, that felt really crappy. <laughs> uh huh. And you know, just kind of like process what the thing was that you experienced. Or you know, you have community that you can go to this thing that you know, you will be uncomfortable, but at least or the kind of community that's like doing their own thing where you don't have to put up with that. <laughs> And I mean, I think like now my life kind of looks like all of those things a little bit, mm -hmm. or at least pre-COVID times <laughs> when we actually went to things. <laughs> so yeah, I guess I'm just trying to think of like, yeah, if you're like playing a show, obviously like having a good sound person is like a miracle <laughs> and it's possible. <laughs> it's possible. Yes. But um. Yeah, when, when someone like greets you at a show and, and trusts that you know what you need, it just feels like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Instead of telling you that feeling where you say like, oh, yeah, like this is what I'm doing. And then someone's like, why, you know, or actually like we're going to do it this way. And you're like, no, like I practice it this way. And like, right. I know you can just plug in these cables that I'm passing to you. Like, <laughs> let's do it that way. <laughs> do you do you find that because you're doing more experimental music that if you're interacting with somebody who's not as familiar with that style of music, that then you have more pushback? Hmm. Because maybe they're less familiar with how that tends to work or the level of knowledge that you have to have in order to set up whatever it is that you're doing? That's interesting. Um, or maybe you haven't had that because you're in spaces where that's not where whoever's doing sound is aware of what's up. Yeah. Um, I think it's a kind of combo where, yeah, I think most of the times when I'm performing at this point, at least, uh, there's either a prior conversation about what's going to happen or that organization or that space is kind of used to things being, you know, maybe in somewhat non-standard form. Like maybe we don't need monitors. Maybe the performer is more in the audience space so they can hear what mm -hmm. the audience are hearing. You know, this kind of slightly more, slightly atypical um, yeah. configurations. But I think also like 
And I'm not sure if it's kind of the like stoicness of like knowing that you might encounter some kind of friction in that situation. Maybe that and like playing in smaller places that aren't necessarily performance spaces. Um, Mm -hmm. Both of those things I think have caused me to like become very adept at just like figuring out what I'm going to do and how it's going to work before I show up there and asking all the questions about like, what kind of mixer do you have? And, (laughs) you know, just kind of like, what can I expect? So I can like answer all my own questions. (laughs) Yeah. Got it under control. (laughs) (laughs) I am the master of my destiny. (laughs) So as far as your experience with like gear purchasing or acquisition, do you have any like best or worst experiences with that? Probably in the worst column is like any time I've ever had to go to a guitar center. <laughs> what is what's your what's your flavor? What's happened? I'm there? trying to think. There was one time I like went in asking for something specific and it was like a time crunch kind of thing. I needed something mm-hmm. for the next day. So I was like, I'm just going to go to guitar center where I know they have it. Like, let's just say it's like um, like an eighth inch to like two uh, TRS quarter inch cables, just whatever it is. And I like went in and I was like, here's exactly what I need. It needs to be like around this length. And like, I just kind of remember like being told or being like interrogated, like, what are you using it for? And I'm like, you don't Uh need to worry about that. Like, I know what I need. (laughs) I just need to know where on the wall it is. (laughs) So I can get out of here as soon as I can. (laughs) (laughs) and it's just like like someone else like it just felt like you know like I obviously didn't know what it was that I was looking for and Mm -hmm. someone else needed to figure out for me and I was like no I actually did that work like just just show me it and then I'll pay for it and be done here (laughs) we'll move on um (laughs) and so I just remember like kind of like getting a little hot-headed um being like why is this person asking me these questions like I just I just need this this thing (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah I guess like even just like, like I've never felt great in, in stores like that where like other people are obviously just like letting loose and having fun. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I just was always like wanting to try things, but never feeling like, you know, I could utter a sound in those spaces. Why, why is that? I don't know. Um, and it's been so long since I've been to a guitar center or any kind of store like that. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it's just like the feeling that like the person at the counter is probably some sort of connoisseur and they're watching the choices that I'm making. And I don't like the feeling of that. <laughs> yeah. Being judged. Yeah. Um, and I don't yeah. know if that's actually happening, but, you know, that's like the feeling um, for mm-hmm. sure. And so, yeah, I prefer to try out gear at like friends' houses or like borrow things from people if, and, and you know, try them out of my own my own space. Yeah, so you try them out, try something out at home or whatever, and then buy it online yeah, probably. Yeah, I would say that's yeah. more likely. Or try to find it used on the internet or something. But yeah, usually the firsthand experience is not in a store setting. I would say it's more often than not like something I see a friend use and I'm like, hey, can I try that out sometime? <laughs> um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I think about like there, there's that company, I don't know if you've heard about this, called like Pedal Genie. Oh. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like Netflix for pedals. <laughs> I'm not trying to like do a, 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 a push here because I've never used them before. But it makes me think about it sometimes because I'm like, oh, well, you could just get whatever pedals you want, try them out at your yeah. house and then send them back and then try some new ones the next month and then decide if you want to buy them. But what if they had that for other yeah. gear that wasn't just pedals? Well, I've heard of some libraries carrying musical instruments and... I've heard of that. Yes, and totally. It's mm-hmm. amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, like I might like, you know, want to give the, the synthesizer a try, but I don't necessarily want to throw down like $600 just to try something right. <laughs> that I don't know is going to be right. important to me later. <laughs> so, yeah, I love that. The library idea. So I want to talk a little bit about your experience with like open uh, signal. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Explain it for folks. Yeah, sure. So open signal was, was, I think is the correct tense at this point. Um, okay. <laughs> that was my other yeah, question, um, I guess, but was this it, a collective, I guess is the probably more most descriptive word, a collective of 
sound and other media artists who were feeling similar gripes about gender and race in electronic music spaces, both educational and performative. And it was a structure that allowed us to have conversations with each other about it. And it was a structure that was kind of, well, we were all, we all found each other because we were in the same institution. (laughs) Before I get into like, what happened? <laughs> I'll just describe what we did. We had a yeah. lot of um, guest artists uh, visit, um, you know, both in, like from out of town and in town and tried to like put people in dialogue with each other that, you know, might not necessarily encounter each other because of like weird institution community walls. And it was a way for us to say like, local musicians still deserve to get paid by the institution like we have this like (laughs) wait a minute hold up are you saying (laughs) but it was like this weird um thing with institutions that like a guest artist must be from far away and it's like no there's like so much genius that's right here (laughs) just like look Mm -hmm. look behind you I don't know like look around (laughs) so uh I think it was a way for us to sort of like collectively say like that's the case like we're surrounded by brilliance and let's like get to know each other uh yeah and so we we ran that for I think like two solid years this was like right around the time that a lot of universities were also doing like pushes for diversity work quote-unquote diversity work um I think that's still happening. Yeah. It's still <laughs> happening and it's just putting that yes. out there. <laughs> the work is never done, but um <laughs> it it was frustrating because we felt like we were trying to operate in a situation where like we were doing all of this despite the stuff that was happening around us and then mm-hmm. we weren't feeling like <laughs> you know like the people that we were talking to were actually hearing us. I think mm-hmm. there was other conversations like amongst us, like amongst people that were kind of already on the same page that were really productive. But there was a way we were trying to like also talk kind of beyond that. And um, it didn't feel like like the institution or the department or or you know, certain people that felt like key people to talk to about shifting things and transforming the way things worked um, were really hearing the things that we were saying or maybe they were even being called into question Despite the fact that there was this internal like call for diversity, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. And then once yeah. that like internal call for diversity work got louder, it kind of felt mm-hmm. like people were pointing to us and saying like, we're doing the work. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was like, no, that's not you doing uh-huh. the work. That's like work that's being done because you're not doing the work. Um, right. And so um, it felt a little weird. Like we were being paraded as this example of like what's, going well and it was like no actually everything is really not (laughs) um (laughs) it's actually the opposite um yeah it didn't lead to like the genuine kind of conversation like it could have been a moment of reckoning where it was like okay Mm -hmm. like we see that what you're saying and now the university is like saying that we need to like pay more attention to these things as well let's like really sit down (laughs) have a vulnerable conversation about the things that are working and aren't working and who they're working for and who they aren't working for. And that just wasn't happening. So I think like this wasn't like a conscious decision, but we were just kind of like, peace. (laughs) 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 Like, yeah, like this isn't the, this isn't the flavor that we're like, we're not, we're not going to just like keep this up um, and do all of this like organizational labor and then have the college or the department be able to say like, look what's happening. Like, look what we are doing. And then, you know, it's like, a lot of folks moved and moved on. And so um, I think like the effects of that are long lasting where we like mm-hmm. really built some strong community, but uh, the organization or collective as it were, <laughs> yeah, is, is dormant, <laughs> is sleeping peacefully. <laughs> but I think that's a good, like, I feel like that's a thing that happens over and over again right like that's not this is not a unique situation by any means and that's part of the I think it's important to be able to point that out and for people to to see that like just because a group of people who feel like they need yeah like that other people are taking credit for the work that you're doing and I think and they're not actually doing anything also like for the people that are doing the work and trying to transform the worlds around them Mm-hmm. If, if the structure under which you're doing that becomes transient or like stops happening, it's because like it's kind of an impossible job <laughs> if there aren't other things that help 
sustain that work or other people who aren't willing to take on that labor. It's just like, you know, it's too much for, for a few people to, to keep doing that on top of everything else. So it's okay that it's transient. It doesn't mean that the effort failed. It just means totally. like we're human and, <laughs> you know, there's, there's other aspects of, there's other ways to keep doing that work. And yeah, that like self-preservation is also important. You're also, cur- I, I don't know if you're doing this right now, but like you've also been doing work with uh, Techni, is that yeah, true? Yeah, um, just as of very recently. Um, yeah. Uh, so Techni is this really awesome organization who was, they were actually the first open signal guests. <laughs> uh, Suzanne Thorpe and Bonnie Jones started this organization called Techni where they do um, electronics and, and sound improvisation workshops um, uh, with youth um, through the Girls Rock Network primarily, but I think also they... Um, found communities to work with in other ways as well. And yeah, kind of developed this curriculum and approach to sound and way of thinking about collectivity as well. Um, so it wasn't just like, let's learn some technical things. It's like, let's think about sound and community and learn a technical thing along the way um, as a means of like community building. So yeah, I just started uh, talking with them um, uh, sometime in the last year and they're kind of, you know, with with COVID and everything, obviously their, their operations, which are very much based on travel, <laughs> um, yeah. traveling to different places and, and setting up these workshops, obviously that model doesn't work. So there's been some talk about like how to make shareable resources and they put together like a listening guide, which is really awesome. Um, mm. you know, something that can be distributed widely. Um, so yeah, there's some talks about how to make like a set of materials or how to create community in the situation that we're in. Um, but yeah, I'm stoked to keep to, to, to work with them. I think the way they're thinking about doing uh, community building and skill building is, is really, um, really thoughtful and sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like maybe it's spread out a little yeah, bit. And yeah. Th- yeah. And I think they're thinking about like, you know, they're bringing more people on board to, to think about that aspect of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'm stoked to see what, what happens with that. Um, it's also just been like really great to be in conversation with other folks kind of thinking about this work in our separate spheres as well. This is related. So like your your PhD and your master's work were really around like music and multimedia and modern culture, like all of that kind of combined. So like you've you've dug deep into like computers and culture and all of that. I'm wondering like for if you're talking to like a random musician on the street about like the importance of like gender, race, identity in music and media and technology or whatever, where would you start that conversation? Woo. Um, <laughs> Woo. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how to, to go there, but I think the first thing that popped in my mind when you said this, and I'm going to just try to like follow that <laughs> impulse, mm-hmm. um, is thinking about history because mm-hmm. there's been so much like reckoning with various histories, history of the United States, history of uh, various institutions. And I think like just thinking about, so this kind of offers an analogy. If we know that like the histories that we've been fed aren't what actually happened in the past. Step one. (laughs) Um, Or, you know, like the history we learned isn't the history. Right. You know, we also can see that that's the case in in sound and technology. So, yeah, I might start there and and, um, just I think like when when our starting points change, then like we can imagine different ending points (laughs) or not ending points, but Mm -hmm. different trajectories. So, yeah, I might I might ask them like, I might try to have a conversation about like who are the who are the people in musical history that you find important and why and and see where that takes us. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I guess one thing I've been thinking about or trying to reckon with is like there's this tendency in sort of like feminist oriented interventions with technology to to say like the the dominant trajectory is like that talk or you know that technology is 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 hyper masculinized which is you know true and then to overcome that we need to like learn the tools and that the history of technology is is so and in the current status of technology and technical production and um is so much more complicated than that um mm-hmm. that um you know, the, the, sometimes it's like the narrative that we're reacting against is already a narrative that's, yeah, that's been, that's not the real historical narrative. Right, right, right. Um, Basically, like we're being told, based what you're saying about the history issue, 
that technology is hypermasculine, but in reality, the history says, no, it's not. Here are XYZ examples of the ways that it wasn't. So like, so what do we do with that? Yeah. And it's complicated because it's like, yes, XYZ happened. But like, if we're thinking Mm -hmm. about, let's say, let's just think about like computing or coding. So we tend to think about in our like contemporary imagination, coding is this like kind of like white guy in Silicon Valley with a hoodie coding. (laughs) That made a lot of money. And that's, yes, that's true. But the history of computation is that like women were the literal computers, like computers being people that computed. And so like the original people who computed were women, but they were, their labor was undervalued. And so it was like a weird connection that, not a weird connection, but, you know, it's like a very complex, convoluted kind of, there are contradictions um, in in the kind of interventions that I think feministly oriented folks are having to wrestle with, which is like, yes, our mm-hmm. contemporary situation is this, but we also have this past. How do we not like replicate that past where like if we're inviting different people or, you know, quote unquote, diversifying, um, you know, there's all these mm-hmm. efforts of like changing who knows how to code or like youth coding right. programs. But if that labor just systemically gets devalued again, then there's no use to that. So just being really careful about, you know, understanding that just because it's technical or a certain kind of technical work that we see valued now that like just because we change the demographics doesn't mean we've remedied a problem if like... Mm-hmm. Like, we really still need to value people. <laughs> we need to value the people that are doing the work. We, it's, we can't just think about the work. The coursework that you're doing right now, how do you tend to integrate content around, like, gender and identities into that work? Yeah, uh, it's definitely something I'm still figuring out. And um, mm-hmm. I'm teaching in a new community, a new environment. So there's, like, definitely still getting to know this place kind of work that I'm doing. And, you know, I don't quite know its history so, you know, to address the current problem, I'm still kind of like digging up, like, what were the demographics like in this department and mm. in these classes? Um, mm. I don't have the full picture yet. So like in one course that I'm teaching, we're using peer data, um, which is a lot like the software Max MSP that I mentioned, except it's free. It's open source. Um, so I use open source software whenever I teach because I don't mm. want students to only learn software that they can only use if they're on school machines <laughs> right. right now but you know always like after they leave school I want them to be able to pick up that software and do that thing again so I teach technical things but I try to orient them around concepts so like if we're talking about randomness we'll make like poems we'll make uh Dadaist poems <laughs> and cut up newspapers and think mm, about like nice how do we what kinds of words do we start with and what kinds of results do we end up with and what kind of meaning is generated in that process um, or what kind of experience is generated and how might we compose that experience and how does that change the meaning, et cetera. So like starting from there and then like thinking about the software and how it might replicate some of those things. Yeah, I think like I'm trying to focus on concepts and experiences (laughs) rather than the technology as like the kernel of where the, the art happens. Certainly like ideas come up with different technologies. Um, so I don't want to like say that that's not important, but, but yeah, trying to create different ways of relating to the software. So you had said earlier on in our conversation that when you were younger, you didn't really talk very much. And I'm wondering how that connects to your relationship with music. Hard to say, except that like, I know, I know that when I was in my like most silent of years, which is like maybe most pronounced when I was, um, like first, second, third grade, I had a very strong relationship with the music that I was listening to and was listening to like pretty intense stuff, sort of. Um, Maybe not that I, now that I know that other people were listening to those things too, but like the music that my siblings were listening to and I would Mm -hmm. like, like the Cranberries, I would like took very seriously. (laughs) Ooh, yeah. Um, (laughs) And like, yeah, I, I, um, but I was very embarrassed about it because like for some reason, I think I was just, I don't know what I exactly I was worried about. It's hard to get into a young person's mind. But I was like very nervous about anyone knowing that I was that interested in music as well. But it was very important to me. I'm not quite sure if those things are are paired, but certainly the anxiety around them was where it's like, I don't want people to know what's going on in my head and I don't want them to know what I'm listening to. (laughs) Right. Well, because what you're listening to might be reflective of what's going on in your head. You just got it. 
Yeah. yeah. You, you figured out little Asha. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I think that having the tool, having music as a tool for yeah. that is it is yeah, useful. Totally. Yeah. So, you know, to psychoanalyze my young self. Yeah. I think music <laughs> is probably a way to externalize what I couldn't do. And I didn't want anyone mm-hmm. to know any of it. <laughs> So you you recently had a presentation that you did with Suzanne Thorpe titled Engendering a More Inclusive Slash Equitable Field. So if you had the opportunity to talk to, you know, people in the industry, in the music gear industry, I know this is maybe not as directly the field that you're talking about, but like, what would you talk, what would you tell, what would you pull from that to tell them to to help make the space better? Yeah, that... That presentation was, um, well, one was really Suzanne driven and I was kind of um, mm-hmm. on assist. Um, and got it. Well, <laughs> but Suzanne was running through the, the pedagogy and the strategy of Techne, which um, was awesome. And she kind of ran the workshop with us. And so through the workshop, we did like some kind of like, you know, what might otherwise be categorized under like mindfulness exercises and kind of embodiment things. Um mm-hmm. And yeah, kind of ran through the, the, the steps and the strategy of the techni workshops. As far as like what I would tell people in industry, if I could just like a direct line. <laughs> if they were like, Asha, I've got a question. What are we going to do? How do we make it better? And you were like, I've got some ideas. I'll tell you. <laughs> I think the hardest thing, or not the hardest thing, but one hard thing that I just don't see happening enough of is just people letting go of their power in their positions. And it's just like, sometimes you just got to not be there. (laughs) And so like, I don't know, like, even if you're trying to do good work, like try to do good work, and then maybe like, give someone else a chance to do that work. Not to say that, like, that labor shouldn't be shared. Um, I'm kind of walking myself into a corner here. But yeah, I guess I would just like to see more like changing of the guard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. like real transformation of the way that organizations and companies look. So that's like, you know, if I had a direct line, <laughs> um, yes. that's one thing I would say is like your company doesn't have to run like other companies. Like you could really, really rethink the way that you do things. Right. The connection there maybe with that workshop was that like in that workshop, like everyone is the expert of their experience or the, that workshop engendering change. You know, it's like the way that Suzanne mm-hmm. and Bonnie, I think, really run those workshops is like they're not there to to show you anything. They're there to to share like but mm-hmm. not like say that we're the experts and here we're going to teach you this thing. It's like, no, we're just kind of like facilitating this thing and everyone is an expert of their experience and everyone's response to this experience is completely a-okay. So yeah, I guess I would like to see more of that in like the hierarchies of whatever music companies, which is like when someone says that something's a problem, it's probably a problem and maybe you should listen to them and maybe you should just like, <laughs> you know, move aside and make a little space for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> I, I guess I saw the, I saw the title and I was like, this seems related. Uh, but yeah, I think that the expertise piece of that is a big one. Yeah. Right. And the, the connection to power with that yeah. too. All right. So what else is, what's coming up for you? What's that? You talked about maybe making a new record or some sort of uh, recording or something, but. I've kind of been in this, like, I'm, it's really exciting when someone asks me to participate in something. And so I always say yes. Um, but, um, it's fine. Hot tip, everyone, <laughs> listeners, get that hot collab with Asha. I don't know about that, but, um, uh, I think it, like, I just, I'm really craving, like taking a step back and seeing like, what is the big picture of the last yeah. couple of years and what would I really like to see? manifests in the world in the next couple and how do I kind Mm -hmm. of like work backwards and and set that set that in motion well thank you um before we close out I want to make sure that we have a way for folks to stay in contact with you where can they where can they stay in contact or hear more from you yeah um I uh sometimes update a website which is just my first and last name dot net um I have very unupdated um uh, Bandcamp and SoundCloud accounts. <laughs> uh, Good. But it's a way for me to find other people. So feel free to find me there because then we can be connected um, virtually. And then, yeah, um, Instagram also, where I sometimes post pictures of my doggy. <laughs> 
your dog is adorable. <laughs> I think everyone should find Asha on Instagram. If not, if not for the music, then definitely for the dog. For the dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate Thanks it. So much. This was fun. Asha really is one of my favorite people. It's so great to get a chance to talk to her. It's been a minute. So, uh, you know, if you want to follow her, you can find her and all of her links in the show notes. So please check those out. All right. Today, I want to dig in a bit around the topic of sexual harassment and its definition, as I'd mentioned at the start of the show. So first, it's important to acknowledge that in the U.S., sexual harassment is only illegal in school and work. Those places are considered protected. You should have a right to get an education and earn a living. That's that's the that's the idea, at least. But that also means that harassment that happens elsewhere, like on the street, is technically legal. That's not protected, <laughs> at least until it gets to the point that someone is breaking another law or something. But street harassment itself is not illegal. That's a problem for a whole other episode. Anyway, along with our definitions. So there are two main types of harassment, quid pro quo and hostile environment. So quid pro quo harassment basically means this for that. And this is the thing that you think of when you think of sexual harassment, usually. So it's someone in power, usually, you know, in this case, either a boss or a teacher who says that you will either like get a raise or a good grade if you engage in some sort of sexual behavior. Or on the flip side, it means that if you don't engage, that they will fire you or give you a bad grade. Right. So we've seen plenty of movies about this. We have uh, heard about it in the news. This is the type of harassment you hear about, that, and it's fairly clear-cut. Harvey Weinstein and the like are guilty of quid pro quo harassment, in addition to other things, but, you know, that's that's the main issue there. So, hostile environment harassment. It's a little less clear-cut, um, and it is essentially what it says, right? It occurs when an environment in a workplace or a school is so hostile that one cannot do their work or learn, right? And that is... That's a problem. So it's said that it's supposed to be like, quote unquote, persistent or severe. So that could mean either that it's like one really egregious act or it could mean a lot of like, quote unquote, smaller acts, such as like telling gender based jokes, sharing porn with coworkers, consistently making comments about coworkers' body or appearance, leering, sending sexual text messages. Right. So basically, it's anything sex or gender related that makes someone feel uncomfortable, right? And I will add, it doesn't have to be that like they're saying it to you. If you're even witnessing it and you don't like it, you could actually be a victim of hostile environment sexual harassment. It just has to happen around you and be so distracting that it is hard to do your work, okay? So part of the issue with hostile environment sexual harassment is that some people don't define the issue as a problem in the first place, right? They don't see their behavior as a problem and they think that it is normal. And if no one calls them out on it, then in this situation, they're right. It is normal. <laughs> uh, the harmful behavior has become normalized. And that's why it's extremely important that if someone witnesses harassment, that they either tell the offender or their boss or both that the behavior is unacceptable so that it does not continue, right? And if harassment happens to you, first, it is never your fault, of course. It is never, ever, ever your fault. But second, you know, the persistence piece of this, the definition means it's useful to document those behaviors if it's happening to you. Writing down the time and the place that it occurred, specifically what behavior occurred. And then also like if anyone was there to witness it. So you have that documented. If it's something that occurs through technology like a phone or email, either screenshot it or save the email or the text or whatever social media content it was. And this is how you can demonstrate to the quote unquote persistence of the behavior, right? All right, I'll stop here for today, but I wanted to stress the importance of understanding these definitions so that you can recognize the behavior when you see it. So either as a bystander or someone who is being harassed. And if you have been harassed, you can reach out to your local rape crisis or resource center or report it to the EEOC in the U.S. And obviously, hopefully, you feel comfortable reporting it to a supervisor or manager or HR or someone like that. But if not, the EEOC is a reference for you. And nationally, you can visit RAIN, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network website as well at, at RAINN.org. 
All right. I appreciate you listening to the podcast. If you have any thoughts or comments, definitely uh, shoot me a message. You can find my info in the show notes. Have a great week.